Carol Ward lives a life many would not believe is real. She dares to follow God and change nations one life at a time. Hers is the story of one woman's commitment to her God and to the love for his people. Her journey and her story began by stepping out in faith when she prayed with a sincere heart, send me where no one wants to go. Although she was told repeatedly by U.S. authorities and other organizations she would come back in a body bag, Carol, through her faith in the power of God, has been transforming lives in northern Uganda and South Sudan for the kingdom of God for the last 18 years. I had a chance to sit down with Carol while she was here in the Chicagoland area to hear her story. Uh, my generation comes from a missionary background, so that's three generations now. My grandparents were in China for 30 years, and they were Presbyterian medical missionaries. And when the communist invasion came in the 40s, they were taken prisoners of war. So after 30 years serving there, Watchman Nee came up in their home. My mom spoke Mandarin, and they were faithful prayer warriors they ended up POWs, but they got out as exchange prisoners. And uh, so years later, my mom and dad married and went to uh, the Philippines in the southern island um, of Mindanao, where there's a lot of um, terrorist activity and uh, communism as well. And so they went as Wycliffe Bible translators, and they were translating for 62 years and so my playmates and my upbringing in the Philippine jungles were with the children of terrorists. Others were evacuated, kidnapped, left the country. My dad said, I'm going to die serving. I'm not going to leave. And he lived by the voice of God. Romans 8, 14, as many as are led of the Spirit are the sons of God. So I watched that in action. He wouldn't go into a village to bring the gospel without saying, Lord, how do you want me to travel? And so if God would show him two wheels, well, he'd ride his motorcycle, and the bus would be bombed that day. Wow. If God showed him four wheels, he got on the bus, and the motorcycles were all, you know, executed, decapitated, ambushed. So he lived that way, and that was the model of my life and instilled in me the power of God's Word. We saw signs, wonders, and miracles happening in these dark areas, as well as the Word of God getting translated. So... Um, all those years growing up in the Philippines was the foundation of my life. And I used to read Fox's Book of Martyrs every night as a bedtime story and say, Lord, would you ever consider me uh, to be a martyr if you need that? Because that's how the church grows. And so I um, didn't know how God would lead me, but I had unreached people groups on my heart, Muslim nations and unreached areas where Jesus has never been heard because nine out of 10 missionaries goes to reached areas, one goes to unreached. So I said in my prayer, starting as a young teenager, send me anywhere in the world you want me to 
to go to do anything you want me to do. I'll die there. I'll give my life for you. But just send me where no one wants to go. Uh, years later, I went to uh, Oklahoma and got my nursing degree, and I was ministering in some of the streets and ghettos in Oklahoma City, working with heroin addicts, bringing them home like lost puppies. And I found that many in addictions are, are connected to the occult. So I learned a lot about spiritual warfare, had to, to see these kids set free. I did uh, nursing and then uh, foster care for therapeutic level kids and just had a passion in my heart for the hurting, the broken, the outcasts. Lord, send me to those kind of places as well because that's, that's who you're going to make your army out of, according to Micah 4 and Ezekiel 37. Uh, years later, as I was working in Oklahoma, I got an invitation to go to uh, southern Uganda. Now, people think of Uganda from Idi Amin's days, but this is fast forward into a new war in northern Uganda, which is everything north of the Nile River, Joseph Kony started an LRA warfare, which means Lord's Resistant Army. And he was demonic dictator extreme. Human sacrifices every day. He abducted 50,000 plus children, turned them into child soldiers. He um, maimed and, and executed and massacred people. We were losing a thousand people a day north of the Nile from ambushes, from starvation, from disease, from massacres. That's a high number. Missions had evacuated because it wasn't safe anymore. They had lost people. So that was going on in the north, but I was invited to come to the south and teach on this Bible school and run the campus for a full year. And so that was a campus crusade startup. So I went over there and I learned from the students from five East African countries represented on campus about their nations and about the need. But the thing that pulled my heart and gripped me was most was this war in the north uh, of Uganda, same, same country I was in. And so when the students came to me weeping, please, will you come? And I said, why me? And they said, because no one else wants to go. And I said, oh, Lord, that's the answer to the prayer I prayed. Send me where no one wants to go. So when I said yes to that, I thought, well, I need a mission organization to cover me. And um, I got to raise support and all that kind of thing. So I took a break, went back to the States and and mission organizations would just hang up on me saying, come home in a body bag, pay, pay to send you and have your blood on, your, on our hands. Are you kidding? No way. And, and just hang up. That was it. And so my little country church, the pastor said, we'll send you. We'll, we'll pray over you and just send them like they did in the book of Acts. And two widows said they'd support me if I could figure out how to get money up there and so forth. So as I went... The U.S. Embassy said, that's off limits. And I said, well, there's a thousand a day dying. And, and I can't find, and I, I actually told him this. I said, I can't find in the book of Acts where they ran away from danger. I said, whether you believe it or not, I said, God sends his people into the heart of danger to rescue the hurting and the broken. And I said, I am going. And they asked me, well, what's your name? I told them my name. And they said, we're crossing you off our list. You're as good as dead. 
I said, no problem. I said, then the devil can't kill a dead man. You know, that's what I, uh, that was, that's what I started quoting later because I realized when we die to ourselves, we became a, a, a threat just then to the, to the powers of darkness because they can't touch us. And that's the call of the cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So as I prepared to go north over the Nile River to no man's land is what they called it, um, I drove by myself and I fought fear in the car, I will say. I'm looking to the right, to the left, praying hard, uh, waiting for ambushes to jump out of the bush because they, uh, the rebels dressed up in military uniform, had AK-47s. You didn't know if they were government soldiers or rebels. They come and they, usually the pattern of what they do is rape, uh, kill, loot the car, and then burn the vehicle. So I'm driving along these roads, six, seven hour journey, through burned up vehicles on either side of this little road, no other traffic. And as I'm praying in the car and, and, uh, and looking right and left, the Lord has this conversation with me. You know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm obeying you, Lord. And he said, no, you're not. I cannot use people in fear. Fear paralyzes. Yes. So he starts talking to me about Israel. I took them 40 years through the promised land, promised them Canaan, and they were too terrified to go get it. Ten said no, two said go. Ten said no, two said go. He kept repeating that to me. He said, are you ten or two? I said, I'm going to be of the two. And I said, well, give me more faith then, Lord. He said, you don't need more faith. You're obeying me. And I said, well, what do I need, Lord? He said, you don't have enough love. He said, perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 18. Fear has torment. Yes. And so I said, baptize me in love, Lord. So much love for you, I'll trust you in life or death. And so much love for the people that I'm going to serve. Because greater love has no man than this, than he lay his life down. Yes. John 15. So I just was baptized by the Spirit of God in love in the vehicle. I'm just weeping the rest of the way. So when I get up to the town, the center of the war, which is the town of Gulu, security wouldn't let me live in the camps. I wanted to live in the camps with two million people were in these IDP camps. And they said, no, you'll be a security risk. So they let me live in the little town and I got a little rent house. And I said, where are you gonna begin except prayer? The darkness was so thick, you could cut it with a knife. This guy's doing human sacrifices every day chopping people to pieces, cutting out eyes and lips and so forth. When the UN discovered it later, they said it was the worst atrocity they'd seen since Hitler. I didn't know it was, it was not known by the rest of the world. So I just moved up there, put a little cardboard sign on my front house and, and, and an African couple moved in with me. So that's my first family. And on that sign uh, out on the front, I said, house of prayer. Everybody welcome, 7A, 7P, seven days a week, we're gonna pray. And so, um, and that was the only desire I had was to go up there and pray. I had no agenda, I had no program. I thought, what else can you do during a war? So people flooded into that little house and we had three hour prayer meetings in the morning, three hours in the evening, seven days a week. And this went on for seven, eight months, just crying out in anguish uh, over the desolation of the land. And it was really Second Chronicles 7.14. But I, I told the, the prayer group, we've got to meet 
in the stadium, which is nothing more than a grass field. So I went to the government and I said, we have to have a national prayer gathering. And they said, you can't. It's a burial ground for body parts and you could do rituals, but you can't pray. And I went back to the prayer team and I said, we have to pray there. So um, we went into a 40-day fast. Now, mind you, that wasn't as hard as it is to fast in America because all we were living on is potatoes and water. And so um, we started fasting for 40 days, um, seeking God. We have to have that, that prayer field. And when you pray and fast, which I call it an atomic weapon, it's atomic bomb. God binds the strong man. And when he binds the strong man, he spoils the goods. So we went into this 40 days prayer and I go back to the government and say, we need to rent that field. Oh, you can have it just like that. But that's the power of God at work when he finds his people on their knees. And so when we got permission for the field, uh, I didn't have a penny. But I said, we'll take it, you know, it's going to cost us 200,000 shillings, which is a couple hundred dollars, you know, and uh, equivalent. Then. And so I don't know how God provided, but by faith, you know, signs, wonders, and miracles follow our faith. So nothing I've ever seen God do, he, he didn't do it because I had a budget for it. You know, he followed, he followed the provision with a step of faith and obedience. And so... We prepared for that national prayer gathering with 40 days of prayer and fasting again. And we mobilized the whole area. Your little fellowship, take a day. Your fellowship, take a day. Your fellowship. And then cover that day in 24 hours of prayer. That happened for 40 days before we started the national prayer gathering. Then when we started, this is the first one. And I say this because it is so significant to what we're seeing God do historically in changing governments. 20 years later, I've been over there 20 years, we still do national prayer gatherings every year. We rent the biggest stadium and the front page of the newspaper changes a week after these prayer gatherings because God works through His church on their knees. Yes. And so, after this first national prayer gathering, Joseph Coney, this demonic dictator, said, what week did y'all pray? He said this through his general who got saved later at our house of prayer. And I told him the week, he said, that's the week Joseph Coney said, I lost my power. And he had power at a high level. He's called one of the highest agents answering to Lucifer, slaughtering a nation. And so if God can disarm darkness, in one region, what can he do in another and another and another? So when we started this prayer gathering, I got scripture verses about repentance and revival and renewal. And I wrote a passage down for every hour. And I said, now you pray, read the passage, pray for the land. No man, no title is going to lead this. No man gets any glory, no denomination. We're not going to pray the news. I don't want the opinions of people. We don't want doctors. This is a platform for Jesus Amen. and the word of God because he holds his word above his name. You read the word and let's come into agreement with what God says is possible yeah. when if my people. So that's exactly what we did. And on the fifth day of this national prayer gathering, the government calls me. Are you those crazy people? He actually called me crazy crazy lady in those days, praying in the stadium. I said, yes, but there's about a thousand of us. 
They came on foot and bicycle through bullets and ambushes to get to that prayer meeting. And I said about a thousand of us have been on our faces in the dirt, blazing sun, eight, 10, 11 hours a day. And I said, why are you asking? He said, because we can feel a change in the heavens. He said, it's like this big black curtain has been pulled back. And he said, the heavens are open. All I could think about is 2 Chronicles 6 that says, when the heavens are brass, when the enemy comes like a, a, a plague and a, and an, uh, and a, and a uh, you know, a war against you, yes. comes in to attack you. And there's diseases and plagues and famines and starvation, if my people. Mm-hmm. That's the prerequisite for 2 Chronicles 7.14. Well, I thought, we're candidates. But he has conditions. Yes. Get on your knees. Humble yourself. Seek my face, not just my hands, what I can do for you. Press in to know me. Turn from your ways. And our wicked ways are even our ways of our own selfishness. Where we're working to self-ambition, self-seeking, self-promotion, self-preservation instead of self-denial. He said, repent, turn around. And so if we do that conditional, he will heal. Today, 20 years later, when we're doing this in South Sudan in the stadium, we have members of parliament, we have bishops, vice president, we have the highest politicians, if they're believers, and, and, and all denominations. We never introduce somebody, never mention a title, nothing. It is a platform for Jesus and we protect that. So when the Holy Spirit has his way and we're praying the word of God, there's nothing more powerful than coming into agreement with God and praying that over the land. It's like prophetic speaking over the valley of dry bones. So when the war ended, then I think I thought my job's done. Okay, I'm going to go to South Sudan. You stop the war. I'm finished here now because I only came to pray. I didn't have another agenda. God gave me instructions when I came, the book of Haggai build my house and my house is a house of prayer for all nations mark eleven seventeen. that's the only instructions i have then the one promise i said god all i need is one promise and he said zachariah 2 5 i will be a wall of fire around about you and the glory of god in the midst of you i said okay that's all i need and i've lived by that well revival exploded after the war stopped within five years time I had 75 full-time indigenous staff that I've trained in leadership, and I had done leadership development. And I know that we had a primary school, we had an orphanage, we're on Christian radio, we had a clinic, we had uh, trauma healing going. 40,000 went through trauma healing based on forgiveness, permanent lasting results. 98% of them accepted Jesus as their savior. We had trained 7,000 in bush training Bible school, three months, three months, three months in all these rural villages. We had 500 graduate through our Bible school, starting with nothing, I mean, no money. Just like this school, how did we start a Bible school? Somebody came in and said, I wanna do 
a Bible school. Another one said, I want to do trauma healing. I want to do women empowerment. And I said, God, I don't have any money. How am I supposed to train them to do all these things? And God said, unwrap their vision. That's when he said, take off their grave clothes. I'll call them out of their grave. The healing of the land is in the heart of the people. The healing of America is in the heart of our youth. It's in the heart of our, it's in the heart of the people. God just needs to unwrap their vision. The, the addictions, the strongholds, the religious spirit, the, all these things and set people free. And he will use them as instruments of transformation. So as they came in, I said, Holy Spirit, you have to teach me how to do this. I don't know how to, to do women empowerment and church construction and Bible college. But this is one example. The man wanted to start a Bible school. I said, well, here's the living room floor. Bring them in. They can sit there. We'll feed them rice and beans. We'll give them a mat and they can sleep there. Bedroom, classroom, everything. And I, what about curriculum? I got some photocopied curriculum from a Bible school in Kampala. I said, here's your course. Go ahead and teach. He teaches this for the first five years. We had over 500 graduate from two years of Bible training. He, first four girls we took, orphans. World Vision came to us and said, there's these child-headed huts, newborn to 12 years old, surviving in these little mud huts, 10, 12 children, getting a little bit of money by selling grass sticks. Some of them dying. No, there's no orphan. There's no long-term facility. Would you take them? I said, all I got is this little house. And they said, but I said, yes. I said, yes to everything. Okay, we'll bring you the first four girls. And I slept in the garage, moved out of the little red bedroom I had, and I gave the girls the bedroom. And that was, that was how we started. And in five years, there was over a thousand churches planted, explosive revival, thousands upon thousands saved. Every miracle you read about in the book of Acts, we'd see. Because we just expect God to do it. Yeah. The believers would say, I'm, 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 I'm saved, I'm born again. We get them disciple, and now we're going to teach you to go. They read Matthew 10, where Jesus said, go heal the sick, cast out devils, cleanse the lepers, and raise the dead, and preach the gospel. Oh, that's my job description. Let me go do it. So we just train them and send them. And we covered northern Uganda. That dictator who started the war had left, and God was taking over with transformation now. Well, during the war, when favor was exploding or the work of God exploding in revival because the war had stopped from that first national prayer gathering, I had to get a government registration. And I didn't want to. I said, I want to be nameless, faceless, underground. God gets all the glory, never seen by man, that kind of thing. That was my heart cry. And they said, you have to get registered. You can't even pass out Bibles if you're not registered. And the thing I wanted to give them the most was the Word of God. It had been out of print for 20 years. And, and by the way, that first five years, we distributed over 80,000 Bibles. Now, all of this God did with no money. Started about 20 
departments from trauma healing, church planting, church construction, radio. I know leadership training, so I set in place an organizational structure, realizing that Jesus has the best model ever. He only trained 12 people. And Acts 17 says they turned the world upside down. So I trained a management leadership, and then I said, you handle two or three departments, heads of departments, and you get them going out there, and you're going to, mo we mobilize an army. And that's exactly what it is right now. But everything is by prayer. Everything is by, we start the day with two hours of prayer and leadership training in our staff. So two hours of prayer every day. Wednesday's a day of prayer and fasting. We have overnight prayers on Friday night. We do national prayer gatherings every year in the stadium. And about every two or three months, we have a full week of prayer and fasting where we bring in all the staff. When Ebola came to the country in 2007, World Health Organization is panicking. What are we going to do? 45,000 people in one camp can be dead in two weeks. And it takes three weeks to diagnose that particular strain. We hit the floor in prayer. You know why? Acts, 7, Acts 12 says, Peter and John were arrested. Peter and James, excuse me. And when they were arrested, James was decapitated, executed by Herod. Acts 12. Peter's going to be next. The church realizes if we don't do something about it, we're going to lose another one. They had an all-night prayer meeting, and God sent divine intervention and release Peter. If we knew the power we have and the authority we have when we get on our knees. So when Ebola came in 2007 and World Health Organization is panicking, I called the staff and I said, let's get on our knees for a whole week of prayer and fasting. We'd been doing that every year anyway. Day five, I get a call from the hospital saying, are you guys the ones praying in the stadium? I said, yeah, why? They said, we've had the people that were in quarantine in the hospital in Gulu have just been discharged negative. Not another case in the country. Wow. And that was 2007. Wow. Now this is 2022. We just had a case again, that was in Uganda, but it didn't penetrate north because we did another week of prayer and fasting. So we answer to 911 yes. emergencies wow. and call everybody in. And this is like, this isn't a five minute prayer meeting. We pray eight hours a day for five days and God gives us a target and we pray the word and we pray. And we pray, a little bit of worship, no preaching, no teaching. We pray the word. He holds his word above his name. Yeah. Now, you know what's happening? I'm taking all the indigenous leadership team. I've been training and raising up over 75. Now we have a 200 of them on base and about 700 missionaries in South Sudan that are going into eight nations into the most uh, dark, areas of terrorism, wherever there's bloodshed, tribal wars, unreached people groups, naked headhunters, we go. And I go. And we go through ambushes and gunpoint. I've never had any fear because of that baptism of love that God poured out on me 20 years ago. But we started in Sudan in 2007. So am I, as I'm going one time, to, uh, by road. Nobody else goes these roads because there's ambushes every day and that kind of thing. But I'm going by road because I said, I want to pray God into these roads and blow the enemy off the road so other people can travel freely. And so we pray. We get the word of God out. We read the scriptures as we're driving. And uh, one time I get to the border. 
This is actually rather recently, because I started in 2007, and I think this happened probably in about 2019, if I can remember right. And so there's danger and danger and date, we still go. And I could tell many stories about that journey on those roads and what God does. But this particular time is a story I'm asked to tell quite a bit. When I got to the border, the military, South Sudan military stops me and says, you're not going any farther. And I said, yes, I am. I always, I always deny, you know, because I'm here to obey God. And I said, and I love not my life, even unto death, Revelations 12. That was the, the spirit of the New Testament church. And so I said, I'm going. I've got Bibles. I've got rice and beans. Pastors are starving. I'm getting up there. We got a team on the ground, many teams by that time, and even an office established. So we have a home base in Juba too, South Sudan. And so the military was saying, no, you can't go. Yes, I'm going. No, you can't go. Yes, I'm going. So I said, okay because he realizes I'm going to go anyway. So he goes and makes a phone call. He comes back, and he says, you got to wait right here. I said, who'd you just call? He said, the president. I said, oh. So he said, president's orders, you have to go with a, a, a military escort in a convoy. Well, I know what happens even in convoys, and so they can still get, you know, uh, rebel attacks, flying bullets, because a convoy means you've got a military truck full of soldiers at the front and one at the back with several vehicles in the middle. Well, those two trucks in the front and the back aren't going to stop a flying bullet anyway. So when we get in the vehicle, I tell everybody in the car, take out your Bibles. I said, that's our weapon. That's our sword. That's our protection. The name of the Lord is a high tower. It's a stronghold. We have no other shield except the shield of faith, and faith comes by hearing. And so everybody gets out their Bibles, and we start, you, you read a chapter, a chapter, a chapter, and we read whether the trip is three hours, five hours, eight hours. You don't stop. It's not a matter of I'm tired. It's a matter of life and death. And we know that. We live by the power of God's word. So here we are. We're in the vehicle. We were starting praying and worshiping. We hadn't actually started reading the word yet. And the convoy stops. Now we're in Sudan. We're in South Sudan. There's a military truck in the front and the back. Government's orders because they know I'm going to go anyway. So they ordered all of this. And there's several vehicles in the middle. Well, I know that I know convoys are never supposed to stop on the roads. You can't have a flat tire. You can't stop, you know, to have a pit, pit stop. You can't do anything because they'll come out of the bush and you're gone. And the way they do again is even on convoys, the rebels will come out dressed in military uniform. Everybody has an AK-47. They get off the bodies of dead soldiers. They take you off convoy to the side of the road and they, and they start shooting and sometimes rape, looting the car, then burn it, that kind of thing. And so this is in the paper and in the news almost daily. And these are the roads we're on. So the convoy stops, and I'm realizing this isn't good. <laughs> now, normally I'm driving. It's a land cruiser, and we go back and forth on that. But I got some team members in the front. One of our drivers there is, is, is driving. I'm sitting in the back seat. We hadn't stopped but a few minutes when two big seven-foot-tall Dinka soldiers, and I know Dinka because of the tribal markings on their forehead, in, in military uniform, both with AK-47s, opened the back doors on either side of me and jumped in the vehicle, 
squeezing me like this, slammed the doors shut and said, warrior escort, now you do exactly as we say. And I knew they were not military. And so I could tell by their faces, the, sp the spirit uh, on them, and the military's not allowed to do that. And so here I am between them, and I spoke to the, our team member in the front quietly, and I said, you do exactly as they say. And I didn't have fear, but I said, God, what do you want me to do? I know, I, all I know is that my dad lived by the voice of God. God would wake him up in the middle of the night and say, get your family in the vehicle and get out of here. And two hours later, there might be a grenade. And so I said, Holy Spirit, is there anything you want me to do? Or I might be seeing you all real soon, you know, up there. So this guy on the left got his pistol out, put it on his pocket, in addition to his AK-47. He had a string of bullets, you know, the kind you load the AK, the, that shoot, and they're all attached. He gets them out of his pocket. He's rolling them around in his hand. We're going off course, and I know what the scene is going to lead to. So instantly, the word of God, that's my food, that's my life, that's my bread, that's my, that's prophecy, that's our prayer, we sing it, we live it. And when you live by it, you're ready to die for it because that's the power of God unto salvation, mm -hmm. Romans 1.16. And so I grabbed the Bible and I whipped around to this guy on my left and I waved it in his face and I said, have you ever seen one of these before? And I said, do you know what this is? I said, I'm so glad you're in the car with us today. I said, what is your name? And I'm talking that fast, 90 miles an hour. And he was startled, taken back. And he said, J Jacob, a joke. They usually have a Western and then an African name. Yeah. I said, Jacob, I said, Jacob, do you know your name is in this book? I said, do you know Jacob was a famous man? I said, do you know who his dad was and his grandfather? Do you know who his kids were? I said, Jacob was so famous. I said, I opened it up to Genesis. I said, is that your name? That's my name. I said, let me tell you about Jacob. And I've got, I'm, I'm in right in his face. And I'm waving this book and I have his undivided attention. And I start in Genesis and I'm going all the way to Revelations with Bible stories. And I talk at that tone of voice and in that, that, that excitement and enthusiasm almost didn't take a breath for three and a half hours because I, that's how long the journey is. And I thought, they're not going to get out of the car and I'm going to keep him spellbound and I don't want to give him a second to think about another thing. And every once in a while, I had their attention. Their full attention. They love stories because they're non-literate kind of, you know, tribal. And so every once in a while, I'd, I'd start with Genesis, creation. I went to Noah. I've never been so excited about Noah and the animals and, and, and Abraham and Isaac and all these stories, one after the other. And every once in a while, he'd stop and say, well, what'd they do that for? Why'd they do that? And he's asking me the questions about all the Bible stories I'm telling. I tell you what, it's good to know the Word of God. Because if it's not in you when you need Him, you're not, you're not able to say, like Jesus did in Luke 4, devil, it is written. Get out of here, you know. So I had his attention for three and a half hours, and I watched our driver get right back on track. We were in the convoy. Both these gentlemen are staring at me. You know, David saved his life in the Old Testament by acting like a madman one yeah. time. And that's kind of what I'm thinking too. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm, I'm keeping him totally engaged. He put the bullets down. And, and when I got to 1 John about walking in the light as he is in the light, 
and having fellowship. You don't have to hate your brothers. You don't have to shed blood. And he looked at me and he goes, I think that's what our nation needs, isn't it? I said, yes, it is, Jacob. That's why I'm here. And he kind of starked into reality, jerked, and he said, why are you here? I was going to kill you. You know that? I said, yeah, I know that. But I've got something stronger than, than death. And his name is Jesus. He's life. And the life I want to tell you about is stronger than death. I saved the salvation message for the end of all the stories so that I could give that to them right as we're driving to our destination. So as we're pulling into Juba and I tell him about the light and the light of Jesus and that he came to bring love, not hatred. Both of these men follow me in prayer to receive Jesus into their hearts and got born again, weeping. And when they fin we finished praying, I took that Bible and I said, Jacob, I'm going to give this to you. He said, you're giving it to me. He grabbed that Bible and he clutched it to his chest like I'd given him a million dollars. Nobody had ever given him a gift before. I said, yes, I'm giving it to you. And I said, on one condition. I said, this book, I'm giving it to you free. Does, it's not costing you everything anything. But I said, it's the most expensive book in the world because it costs Jesus everything, including his life. So you have to be accountable. So I said, I want you to read every day. You promise me you read something every day. And then you tell somebody every day what you read. I'll do it. I promise you I'll do it. He said, and I said to him, I said, Jacob, do you know what that makes you? That makes you a missionary. He looked at me and said, a missionary? I said, yeah. And then he said, will you come to my village and help me be a missionary and tell them too? He said, my village is up by Chad, the most killingest village in South Sudan. I wrote the name of his village down. I said, Jacob, will come. Today we're there. We put in a house of prayer. We've started a Bible school. We're doing church planting and discipleship in Jacob's village, as well as 200 more villages as I speak, because we have 700 missionaries, indigenous, fully trained in these eight nations. So when he got out of the car, I said to him, Jacob, and the, the other gentleman on my, on, on my right received Jesus, gave him a Bible. I said, today, God turned murderers, mercenaries, into missionaries. The enemy is the same everywhere. 
He just wears different clothes. And he's after our children, and we can see that. We've had more deaths in abortion than any African genocide have ever killed in one war. We've had more children in America abducted out of our living room than the 50,000 children abducted in the war I was in. And I still live in war zones. Children are abducted. Children are the victims of war after war after war. We've lost a generation in America and they don't know the right hand from the left, no biblical foundations. And so the same in Africa. In our living rooms, our children are abducted through internet, into pornography, into immorality, into violence, into trafficking, into witchcraft, join the occult. I've seen it in Christian homes and they signed up for Satanism and had to denounce Jesus on the internet. And so right under our noses, we've lost our children. And now we're waking up going, oh God, what can we do? It reminds me of Samson put his head on the lap of Delilah. And then, and then she wore him down because he didn't get up and leave evil and compromise and comfort yes. and complacency. Yes. He didn't walk away from that and neither did we when we've had a chance to. He stayed too long in a comfortable but wicked place, evil place, mixture, compromise. We're supposed to deny ourselves. And so finally she wore him down, got the secret of his strength. The secret of our strength as children of the living God is holiness, righteousness, fear of the Lord, uncompromised biblical standards as our foundation and our prayer life. Yes. Cut off all of it. And then all of a sudden, when she has cut Samson's hair, wake up, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And that's what we've done in America. Wake up, the enemy's on you. And they're going, well, he's in my living room. Now I don't know how to get him out. But I thank God in his mercy that yes. Samson's hair grew back. Yes. And there's hope. But as we're waking up and finding, how did I lose my kids? What's, what about my future? I've lost my destiny. You know, when we lose our destiny, we lose our direction. And we've been a lot of aimlessness round and round the mountain. How come we can't go bring God into situations? Well, we let him be removed yes. from our schools. Yes. Our motto over there in those nations is Bibles instead of bullets. Yes. But America needs that almost more than we do now wow. because we give over 100,000 Bibles a year in 30 plus languages and people are calling us crying don't you have more bibles don't you have more bibles they want the word of god more than food and here we have disregarded it yes, as take optional take it or leave it it is not optional it's the bread of life yes. he said we don't live by bread we live by every word well how have we survived without his word We've got to get back to the word in America. We've got to know our foundations. We've got to love prayer again. And I call it force feeding. Mm. In a diagnosis, medical diagnosis, it's called failure to thrive. Wow. It's when a baby dies in its mama's arms because the sucking has got weaker and weaker and weaker because the baby wasn't getting enough milk, so doesn't have the strength to suck. So he stops crying. There's no gastric juices. And the baby can die in its mother's arms when they came into the ER at the hospital if the baby's dead. She said, well, I just thought he was sleeping. He doesn't cry anymore. He does, he's not hungry anymore. Is the church in America hungry anymore? Jesus. 
And so if the baby's still alive, this is what we do. We put a tube down, pump milk into the stomach. We call it force feeding. When the milk activates the gastric juices, the baby starts to cry again. And then he's hungry again. And then he gets strong enough to suck again. And then when the baby's crying in the house, nobody sleeps. <laughs> because God responds to the hunger of his children. But if we're not hungry, it says in, Re in Jeremiah 31, 15, Rachel's weeping for her children and will not be comforted. Are we crying for our children or are we comfortable? It's one or the other. She refused comfort. And then God says, you can stop crying. I'm bringing your kids home. There is power in prayer. And so uh, another story about prayer. I didn't realize how much the devil targets our prayer life. He wants to destroy it yes. because it disarms him. Yes. And so Joseph Kony, that dictator I just told you about, left Uganda after our first national prayer meeting because he lost his strength. He leaves the country. He's out of there. The war stops. We have revival. But I didn't know this, that he had left his nephew in place to now take his place in dictatorship. And his nephew had been abducted at 12 years old by Joseph Coney's rebels and trained in human sacrifices since 12. So for about 10 years, he was advancing on the hierarchy of evil and the demonic and had a lot of power. Ten years into this, he is already doing 100 to 400 sac human sacrifices and deaths a month almost. I mean, massive amounts. I asked him later, how did you do that? He said, you know those two buses that had a head-on collusion and 150 people die? He said, I caused, I'm going, oh my goodness, I'm learning things about another level. So he had a, a price on my head. He was given a price. You take her out and we'll give you money. Like my dad had a price on his head for 45 years, where the price on my head was only for five years. So that wasn't as bad, but he was gonna be given a, a, a big bounty. And I thought, why? Because you're the one instigating all these prayer movements and it's disarming the devil and you're coming and pushing us out of our territory and moving God in. Do you think the devil's going to hand you the keys and say, oh, you can have the property back, sorry for invading. No, the kingdom has suffered violence. Yes. The violent take it by force. So I didn't know about this young man and the plans. He's breaking into my house every single night because that's part of his assignment. And the way they kill usually there, is a break-in at night when somebody's sleeping, put chloroform on a stick under their noses, knock them out, they kill the person of the house, and then they loot the house. And so night after night, because he couldn't touch me during the day, I'm in the house of prayer, I'm surrounded by my team, he couldn't get to me, so he thought, I'll get her at night, I live alone in a little house by now. And as he broke in, my computer would be gone on my couch. She's stealing my computer. And then another thing, another night, and another night, and my window's open, my door's open. I locked everything. I'm thinking, this is not normal. So I'd start getting up at night and praying. I'm pacing the floor, just doing spiritual warfare, coming against this darkness, calling out to God, whatever. And so after all, a few, a, a few years this went on, but sometimes many robberies in a week, and I didn't know 
have any idea about this young man until one day, I'm in South Sudan, but he walks into our house of prayer in Uganda. He comes in to destroy our house of prayer because the devil's assignments bust prayer. If he can stop prayer in your personal life, in your church, and in a city, he can take over because that's the weapon against him. So this young man's assignment is to stop prayer. He comes into our house of prayer, which is never closed, by the way, since the first cardboard sign almost 20 years earlier. And uh, we have four or 500 people that meet every single day from 12 to 2 for praying, prayer for revival. They skip lunch to come and pray, and the place is full. He walks in to one of those prayer meetings. He's going to cause chaos. He's going to stream. He's going to destroy the place physically, spiritually, whatever he can do. And that's his assignment. Now, he's getting his instructions from Joseph Coney, who is out of the country, but trying to come back in through this young man. And so when he, this young man walks in the house of prayer, he falls on the floor because the power of God is so, is just so present in this prayer meeting. This young man hits the floor like a Damascus road. Paul, Paul did, Saul did, turned into Paul. And God encounters him. What are you doing? And so our leaders at that time called him out, realized what was on this young man. And he falls on the floor. It looks like Matthew 17, you know, and in in, in, in the little boy threw himself in the fire. It looks like a grand mal seizure. And God completely delivered that young man that day. And we kept him in the house of prayer for two years, discipling him because he had so many layers of evil in his life coming out of the occult. And so he, he won seven people to Jesus the first week he was saved. But we discipled him. And he became radical evangelist. He said, as many people as I killed, I want to win that many more for Jesus. Now, I was in South Sudan, and I heard about his testimony. When I came back down, he comes in to see me. And he says, Mom, I got I, I to gotta repent. And he said, you could have me thrown in jail for this. I said, I said Cosmos, you're a, you're a new creation. What do you mean I'm not going to have you thrown in jail? You're a new man in Christ Jesus. And he said, but I have to tell you. He said, you know the, the, the robberies you had? Night after night, he said, that was me. And he told me about the night the computer was gone. Another night the windows opened and this. I mean, he quoted the nights, how, how he got in, the things stolen. And I'm looking at him and said, well, what did you how did you get in? He said, don't ask me that. And then, because they have ways. And then I said, what did you come to do? He said, I came in to kill you. I said, why did you kill me? He said, I couldn't touch you. He said there was a bright light, like a wall of fire around about you. And I could hear you praying at night, walking to pray. I couldn't come close to you. And I started weeping. I said, oh Lord, the promise you gave me of Zechariah 2.5, I will be a wall of fire around about you and the glory of God in the midst of you. And that's exactly the promise God still keeps today. When I go through ambushes and I still drive today, where the UN says it's off limits, US Embassy said, you didn't just come those roads. We just had massive ambushes and blood slaughter. I said, yes, I did. I said, because I choose to obey God rather than man. And there's people dying that need to hear the name of Jesus. Light has to go in or darkness will never be dispelled. Lord, as we have prayed for this precious city and cities across America from Africa,
in 40 days of prayer and fasting from Africa for America. We cry out right now for this city. And Lord, you're after cities because cities make up nations. And you said, ask me for a nation and I'll give it to you as your inheritance. So we pray right now that there would be such a waking up of your bride, such a waking up of your children and of your people that have been in a slumber of self-awareness, self-seeking, affluence, comfort, compromise, coldness, lukewarmness, or maybe even feeling so overwhelmed by darkness that they've just shut down or saying, what can we do about it? It's so immense. Lord, I just thank you that that's a perfect condition for you to arise upon your bride and shine, as you said in Isaiah 60, for the glory of the Lord is upon you. When deep darkness covers Chicago, wake up and begin to shine with the power and the light and the promises of God's word because God's glory is on his bride. And Lord, I thank you that in Chicago, you are not uh, confused. You're not caught off guard. You're not defeated. You're not running around looking for plan B or plan C. You are plan A, you are plan B, you are plan C. You have the governments in your hand like a drop in the bucket. Lord, you know where your bride is. You know where the righteous and the remnant are crying out from street corners and business offices and churches and houses and homes. And you said, Lord, to Abraham, even if there was 10 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, you would have spared the city. But Lord, as we pray for Chicago, we're not just asking for a sparing of the city. We're asking for you to just move in and take habitation and residence in this city. Because when you move in, every bit of darkness is disarmed. Every bit of evil in the heart is disarmed. Lord, we ask you as the great forgiver to come and settle into Chicago and to teach us as your children in this city, to teach those in the streets the power of forgiveness and the healing of forgiveness. Because when we meet the great forgiver who has been willing to forgive us of everything we deserve, to give us everything we don't deserve, and we receive that from you, we can give it to one another. And Lord, healing will begin to flow. We ask that the blood of Jesus flow through the streets of Chicago, not the blood of our youth, but the blood of Jesus. Healing, forgiveness, cleansing, restoration, new covenant, protection, everything that represents what you paid for with the power of your blood on the cross. And when you died, Lord, you said in Hebrews 12, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, you endured the pain. That joy today is Chicago. You love this city and want to gather her under your arms as a mother hand gathers her chicks. You weep over Chicago as you wept over Jerusalem. And we ask you to just come and habitate in this city. Take full possession of what you have fully paid for. Because on the cross you said, it is finished, paid in full. Raise up an army of prayer warriors. Turn the outcasts 
and the murderers into missionaries, just like you did with Saul. You can do it again. And Cosmos, you can do it again. And the rebels in South Sudan, they're becoming missionaries so quickly. And Lord, we just ask that the fires of Chicago of the olden days would be resurrected into such spiritual fires of revival. It would be unquenchable and unstoppable. Where the witch doctor was, right next door. She said, if you build a church here, I'm going to kill the pastor. Even the old church had a grave there. She said, you see this? I killed the, the, the former pastor. He's buried. And she tried to put but we built the church. We dedicated it. And then we came to pray and fast with the believers. But that witch doctor to get saved. Now, the pastor told her, you're going to get born again or you're going to leave. One, choose the one. So, big Abuna, Alcano Gal, their cattle Abuna, the Jalo. Then the witch doctor the she said, I cannot fight anymore. Let me just leave. Make sure the prayer and the Bible and the worship begin in your home. <laughs> God's word will break the traditions of man. He said, I hold my word above traditions. Blessings will follow you and overtake you. Amen. Lord Jesus, I bless these precious, precious sons and daughters of the living Lord. I thank you that we share the same path. We hope you were inspired by Carol's obedience to the Great Commission and the sacrifices she makes to go where no one wants to go. Thank you.